If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. All right. Hello and welcome. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm a medical SLP based in Kansas City and host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Tonight, we have a special two-hour ASHA CEU with Lynn Hawk from the University of Kansas Health System, Department of Otolaryngology. Today's course is on the hyperfunctional voice and Lynn is covering evaluation and treatment modality options. Lynn is a speech pathologist specializing in voice, swallow, and head and neck cancer. She began her voice work journey during her fellowship nine years ago and hasn't stopped learning since. Lynn is passionate about making education on voice topics accessible and easy to understand. Hello, Lynn. Hello. Hi, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Pleasure, pleasure. I'm super pumped for the talk tonight. Yes, I'm excited. Um, I am really passionate about voice disorders, especially um, hyperfunctional voice or laryngeal hyperfunction as you might hear me refer to. So really excited to talk about it and maybe hopefully impart a little bit of knowledge to some of our listeners. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's do this. Okay. So, great. Well, let's just get started. I think when we're talking about voice disorders, probably the best place to start is just a little bit about what a voice disorder is. And so according to ASHA, it's an abnormal production and or absence of vocal quality, pitch, loudness, resonance, and or duration that's appropriate for an individual's age or sex. And so that's important to know, like, yes, the, the, the change in vocal quality is important, but I think what's also really important to realize is that it's also considered um, present when an individual expresses concern about having an abnormal voice that doesn't meet their daily needs, even if others do not perceive it as normal or deviant. And so that's really important for a lot of our patients with hyperfunctional dysphonia is because, you know, a really a common complaint that you might hear is not, my voice doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound normal, but they may say, you know, I'm fatigued. I tire after 30 minutes in a meeting, or, you know, by the end of the day, my voice is tanked. I can't even get through reading my kids a bedtime story. And so those are really important things to realize and kind of think about when you're caring for a patient that has hyperfunctional dysphonia. So it's not always just the quality, but lack of quality when you're, when you're talking about hyperfunctional voice. And so there are different types of voice disorders. Obviously, the main topic for us tonight is functional voice disorders, but you've also got organic and psychogenic voice disorders. And so We'll jump right into a foot what is a functional voice disorder. So a functional voice disorder. Any disorder caused by improper or inefficient use of the vocal mechanism when the physical structure is normal. So 
there are no bumps, lumps, lesions on the vocal cords, okay? Vocal cords look good. The arytenoids are abducting and adducting normally. All of that is, is good. So then we're looking at, you know, how are you running this system? Typically, you'll see muscle tension dysphonia types two and three, okay? So two is going to be more of a, a lateral compression. Three is going to be an anterior, posterior compression. Sometimes you do see four, which is going to be full adduction of those arytenoids to the epiglottic petiole. And one is going to be where they are so tight that the arytenoids don't fully touch, okay? So those are, those are the muscle tension dysphonias that you're really looking at. You might also see some ventricular phonation, which is really interesting, where the, the false vocal cords or the ventricular folds will vibrate. You'll also get another, as part of a functional dysphonia, is going to be vocal cord bowing or the hypofunctional dysphonia. But you also might get phary pharyngeal constriction. And I would also include um, base of tongue retraction in that as part of the, the functional dysphonia. And so those are the traditional functional dysphonias that you, you may encounter, okay? But I think we would also be remiss not to discuss the other types of dysphonia when we're talking about hyperfunction, okay? Organic structural waste disorders are waste disorders that develop due to a change in how the structure moves or works. And this is really important because hyperfunctional voicing can lead to structural changes of the vocal cords. And typically I think of cysts, granulomas, hemorrhages, nodules, or polyps. And those are all listed under the obviously acquired category. But those are lesions of trauma that can come up because of that hyperfunctional voice use. And these are really important to kind of keep in mind because they can really shape how the therapeutic process unfolds. So, you know, you come in to a, a voice evaluation with a patient and they've got hyperfunction, but then they've also got um, a polyp with a reactive lesion that's resulted because of that hyperfunction. And so they come in to you and you're like, okay, we got to work on unleashing this tension, unleashing this hyperfunction. Great. So they present to you and they have a really strange vocal quality. And then you start to do some of the, the exercises that we're gonna talk about later on in, in the presentation. And now they no longer strained, but now they sound really raspy and they sound really breathy. And the patient's like, well, this isn't what I wanted either. But that, that's part of it. So you've unleashed, you've released some of that hyperfunction, but now you've got to deal with the dysphonia caused by the structural changes. And so, you got to keep on doing those exercises because the more you release and maintain that release of that hyperfunction, the more those vocal cords have the ability to heal. So really important to also think about structural changes that can occur and how that will affect your therapeutic process. Also remiss not to touch on neurogenic disorders. So here we're looking at voice disorders that stem from a problem in the nervous system and how that information is transmitted to the larynx. Big ones here are going to be paralysis or paresis, spasmodic dysphonia, and tremor or essential tremor. So those are going to be the big ones that may relate to laryngeal hyperfunction. Okay. 
So a lot of times if a patient has a paralysis or a paresis, they may try to compensate for, for that deficit. And they're going to do it by squeezing. They're going to, they're going to try to push to force that, that closure. And so we don't typically do hyperfunctional therapy for a patient with a paralysis. Maybe sometimes we will with a paresis, you know, you will run into the occasion where they are paralyzed in that really perfect, like medial position. So they get good glottal apposition or closure with that, the corresponding vocal cord. And in that case, you might do it. But typically when we're thinking about hyperfunctional therapy for paralysis, it's often in the context of the patient has had a procedure to push the bad cord over to meet the good. We would call that a medialization laryngoplasty. And sometimes, you know, after that occurs, the patient, their, their body recognizes, oh, hey, we're getting good glottal closure. I don't have to force that closure anymore. But some patients have done it for so long that their body just continues to want to try and push. And so in those instances, one of our ENTs may say, hey, you know, can you see this patient for a couple sessions to try and help break their hyperfunction? I think what's really important to notice in one of these patients is that regardless of, of how good their glottal apposition is, they are still working off of one vocal cord. So they are always going to have fatigue. They're always going to fatigue faster than a patient who has two working vocal cords or two arrhythmias would. Kind of like hopping down the hall on one leg. You can hop down the hall on one leg, fine, but you're not going to be able to go near as far, near as fast as you would if you were walking on both legs. And so that's something to kind of think about is even with these patients, yeah, you can probably help them with increasing their longevity a little bit, but they're still always going to fatigue. And that's just really important to know in terms of expectations on, on what you're going to get if you're working on hyperfunction with this particular um, population. That is spasmodic dysphonia is also really interesting for two reasons. Sometimes you'll get a patient that comes in and they're like, you know what, my voice isn't quite right. I don't know what it is, but I know it's not right. And so sometimes they'll come into you when they are just kind of starting to, to get spasmodic dysphonia, like that, the onset is just kind of starting. And the body's way of trying to compensate for that spasm is just to become super hyperfunctional. And so every once in a while, we'll get a patient and one of our docs will say, hey, I'm not really sure. Like, I'm wondering if maybe there's a spasmodic dysphonia starting to pop up, but they're so hyperfunctional, I can't tell. And so then it's really fun because it kind of becomes a diagnostic tool. Okay, like, well, let's see what happens let's do this hyperfunctional therapy and let's see what happens. Do they get better or do we start to reveal something different, something they, they still have a problem, but it, it manifests itself in a different way. So that's always kind of interesting. But another part of the spasmodic dysphonia is sometimes, you know, the traditional management for spasmodic dysphonia is Botox. And some patients are like, Nope, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. But they're really bothered by the, the strain of their voice, you know, that really effortful voicing that occurs because, again, their body is kind of trying to suppress that spasm. And so they might say, you know, I don't necessarily worry about 
the quality of my voice. I just don't want it to be so effortful. And in that case, we might do some hyperfunctional work in the context of knowing that we're not going to get really smooth vocal quality. You know, you're going to have break. You might have breathy breaks or voice breaks, depending upon which kind of spasmodic dysphonia you have. But it's not going to clear the voice, but it's going to make it less effortful and less strained. Okay. So it's kind of like you're easing into your spasm. And that's sort of the same thing with the tremor. You know, we can't get rid of the essential tremor with voice therapy, but we can help you sort of adapt to it and kind of ease into the tremor and, you know, kind of let your body relax to produce the sound. Um, and so th- those are the big kind of uh, caveats for the, the neurogenic voice. I think the psychogenic voice is also really important. So there are psychological stressors that can lead to habitual maladaptive aphonia or dysphonia. You know, sometimes somebody comes in with a really traumatic event and their voice changes. And a lot of times it's just, it's, it's hyperfunction. They're, they've got a lot of stress. They've got a lot of strain. Sometimes they hold it in their neck and their shoulders, and that comes out in their voice and appropriate for us to try to help them relieve some of that tension. But sometimes they may need to see somebody else. You know, I think we, we've had to learn to become and adapt to becoming a counselor, but we're not a counselor. And sometimes in these particular situations, um, they may need more help than we can give them. And that's also just something really important to kind of keep in mind and always good to get a, a, the background information on when the voice disorder happened and if there's anything going on at the time that it happened. And so um, these are, in my mind, when I think of evaluation components, they're sort of the big steps in each person's evaluation that I go through. And in this particular class, I'm not going over how to do an evaluation because I think that's you know enough material for another class in and of itself. But I think there are particular pieces of the evaluation that are really important to think about for those hyperfunctional dysphonia patients. So as I kind of alluded to before, instrumental assessment is paramount to determining your plan of care. You've got to get that laryngeal imaging to know exactly what you're working with. So endoscopy is just a general looking at the the voice box with a scope, okay? Um, It gives you visualization and assessment of the structures. It gives you an idea of how, of the gross function of how the larynx works. Like, does it open? Does it close? Maybe it'll tell you if the vocal cords touch, maybe not. Depends on how hyperfunctional the patient is. Video stroboscopy is kind of like the gold star for voice. Video stroboscopy is great because it gives you visualization and assessment of the vocal cords during phonation. Okay. So with both procedures, you're going to see what the vocal cords look like. You'll get a good idea of that medial edge and that superior surface of the vocal cords. Sometimes you'll get a lot of closure. It'll tell you if the arytenoids abduct and adduct fully. And then it'll give you an idea of the supraglottic activity. So what's happening above the vocal cords? What kind of squeeze are you getting or not getting? But what video stroboscopy does tell you is it gives you regularity. Okay, So when the vocal cords vibrate, 
Do they vibrate in a nice regular pattern or do they kind of flutter? You know, that would give you a good idea of what their patient's respiration or coordination of respiration and phonation is like. Um, it'll tell you about amplitude, you know, how the vocal folds move from midline laterally. It'll give you an idea of mucosal wave over the top of the vocal cords. You know, does it have a really nice mucosa over the top or is there a vocal cord scar? Because if there's a scar, they're probably going to be raspy no matter how much hyperfunctional work you do. And they're probably going to be hyperfunctional because they're trying to compensate for that, that scar. So that's really important to know. Symmetry. You know, do they, they vibrate together or do they kind of chase each other? And that's really important because that's going to tell you about either tension on the vocal cords or mass difference. You know, maybe one of the vocal cords is thinner or has had atrophy of the other one. And that's also going to affect outcomes. It'll also give you a really good idea of glottal closure and the glottal closure duration. So when the arytenoids touch, the vocal cords come together. Or is there a gap? There's a gap as they vibrate. You know, do the vocal cords spend more time open than they do together? Because if there is a gap, they're probably going to be hyperfunctional to compensate for the gap. And when you start to get rid of that hyperfunction, so that's why stroboscopy is is paramount really for, for voice therapy. And can you start voice therapy with just endoscopy? I mean, potentially, but really you need that stroboscopy to figure out exactly what the problem is and it'll help kind of guide your expectations for the therapeutic process and what you're going to need to do because maybe hyperfunctional therapy isn't going to be the only answer for this patient. Maybe they're also going to need some strength-based exercises or something of the sort. So really important to at least get a good idea of what you're working with. Good question. So when I've gotten referrals in the past before an outpatient, they like may come from a laryngologist or slash ENT. Like I'm never really certain if they like have specialized to that degree of laryngology or not. So like they've almost always done an endoscope. Okay. So they've like visualized the vocal folds. Yeah. And so like, I always recommend that they follow up like with a video stroboscopy, mm-hmm. but like sometimes I feel like the patient has been like, well, I've had one tube in my nose. No more. Thank you. If you can help me, help me. If not, then we're done. Like, have you ever encountered that kind of uh, potential like resistance to additional imaging from the patient? Not so much. Like I might get an eye roll or a hop or a puff, but usually by the time, at least by the time they've gotten to us, they're frustrated enough with their ways that we can kind of explain, you know, this is going to tell us exactly what's going on. This is going to give us a really clear image of what's happening. And, you know, I, I always explain, like, I, I really can't tell you what's going on. I can't figure out how to help you if I don't see exactly what's, and usually they're pretty receptive to that. Again, you know, you might get an eye roll. They're like, okay, fine. Like I want to do something about my voice. And so I think usually just education on why it's really important to have this this look especially the video stroboscopy look is extremely important mm-hmm. yeah no, that's a great question because people don't like having stuff put up there <laughs> I don't know why I love it but not everybody else does <laughs> and this is why 
because you get these beautiful images. So this is, you know, what we're looking at here is completely normal, super healthy larynx. Image on the left-hand side is just nice abduction, really healthy. I mean, you can even see the ventricles inside the vocal cords. And I think what's really important when you look at that image on the right is that when the arytenoids are together and the patient's phonating, you get this beautiful oval shape around the vocal cords. And that's really what we're looking for. You know, that's showing us that they've got really efficient voice use. They've got a little bit of posterior gap in the back, which is normal for women, but otherwise beautiful, nice oval shape. Everything looks really good. And that's, that's kind of the goal. That's what we're looking for. And this is always something that we show patients too. So when they come in for stroboscopy and we do their exam, then we show them normal so that they can get a little bit of an idea of what the voice box should look like and how it should work. Okay. And then they don't even need us to explain exactly what's going on when we show them theirs. They're like, well, mine doesn't look like that. But here are some, some pictures of some hyperfunctional voice boxes. So on the left, you know, again, really nice abduction. When they go to phonate, they really get a lot of anterior or posterior speech. You could probably call that like a four. Because I know that the image is flipped, but on the right side of the voice box, you know, that arytenoid approximates the epiglottic pedule. The left one doesn't quite, it's pretty close, but that's, I mean, that's a lot of squeeze. That's a lot of hyperfunction going on in that voice box. And you can imagine they probably tire extremely quickly after um, a short period of time talking. I just wanted to mention, Lynn, I think you can use your mouse to act like, like a laser pointer. Are you seeing that? Okay, perfect. Yeah. So I know this is always really confusing and this really confuses my perspective of the world sometimes. Um, like when they're talking about right fielders and I'm like, no, oh, that's not the right fielder. That's the left fielder. But right side, <laughs> left side. So that right arytenoid is approximating the petiole. Left one, not quite so much, but pretty close. So here you've got another hyperfunctional voice box, not quite as severe as the one that we just saw, but you can start to see that this patient has like the type two where the, you see the false fold start to pinch in, but then you also see that anterior posterior squeeze and you're getting more of like a box shape. That would be that type three where that, because the, arytenoids and the petiole are starting to kind of come together. And on the opposite side, you know, you still get some of that three here because that petiole is starting to pinch in. But what's really prominent here is that you start to see the false vocal cords start to impinge over the, the vocal cords. And that's more of your type two. So not as, you know, severe looking as the other ones, but just as impactful. And they have just as much of an impact on the voice. These are fun. You know, we've got over here on the left, the left image, we've got a right hemorrhagic vocal fold polyp, which is interesting because this is like, you know, what I was saying, the patient really hyperfunctional and you can do therapy to start to relieve some of that hyperfunction, but then you're also going to have to deal with the dysphonia left by this polyp. And now this is a different larynx, but it's a really good illustration of what happens when you have pathology on that vocal cord. So this patient has edema on this left cord, okay? But this is a really good picture of what happens when you get rid of some of that hyperfunction. So they got a little bit of 
a little bit of two on the sides here, but when they have complete, when they're at maximum glottal closure, they still have a gap in the back and then in the front. And so that's going to make the voice really airy, probably on top of the raspiness that's going to happen because this left cord is going to be really heavy and really difficult to vibrate. Um, and these are just some other laryngeal pathologies um, that I thought are kind of fun to to show, you know, this one is really subtle, uh, but you can see that the patient doesn't have a really smooth vocal cord. You know, it's just enough that it's going to throw the voice off when you start to unload some of that hyperfunction. And then also fun because, you know, mucus loves to hang out around lesions. And so that's a really good uh, illustration of that mucus kind of hanging out around the, the lesions there. That takes care of like the the first part of of the voice um, evaluation process is just looking at the actual vocal cords, getting eyes on them, and seeing exactly what's going on. But then next, what's really important is to just listen to them, listen to their voice, and don't just listen in sustained vowels. You got to listen to them in sentences. You got to listen to it in connected speech because it may sound different for, for all aspects. But I think when you're listening to a voice, some of the main characteristics that you're going to hear that are associated with hyperfunction are going to be just a raspiness or a harshness to the voice. You might notice increased vocal effort. Like it's, you can hear it in their voice. They are really pushing or forcing to try and get sound out. Excessive loudness, they might be really loud. Um, intermittent aphonia, so at times they may not have a voice at all, especially, you know, if they're really strained, those vocal cords may not vibrate. They might have so much tension on the cords that you just get squeaks or air. Pitch break, their pitch may break. They may not be able to access their upper register, so they may not have access to those upper notes. And then last is, is everyone's favorite, but bottle fry. So they may just have that popping sound to their voice. And so those are kind of the big hitters when you're thinking of characteristics of, of a hyperfunctional voice when you're just listening to it. Some things to look out for when you are doing a case history. So really listen to how the patient describes their own voice problem. And really, when you ask them, ask them to tell you about their problem, their own words, okay? Because a lot of times when they, at least in our clinic, they come to us after they've seen the laryngologist and the speech pathologist for the stroke, they come to us and they're like, well, they say I got this bump on my vocal cord. You know, listen, say, you know, what what brought you in here? What, what brought you in to see us in the first place, okay? A lot of times they're going to say, my voice is tired. My voice is worse at the end of the day. My voice gets out. It gets out when I'm talking in a meeting. My throat feels sore after talking. I feel like I need to clear my throat when I'm talking. I feel like I've got something stuck in my throat when I'm talking, things like that. Those are all really important things to kind of, one, help you gauge what you're, you're looking for. But two, it'll kind of help you notice if you're starting to make improvements because, you know, the voice may not change especially in the case of um, a patient that's got 
vocal fold nodules in the case of laryngeal hyperfunction. But, you know, if they're like, you know, my voice isn't great, but I'm not fatiguing at the end of the day. Like I can get through the day and my, my throat still feels okay. Well, then, you know, like you're headed in the right direction and that you're making gains. So that's why I just think that's always really important to just make sure um, you get a really good description from the patient of what their voice problem is. And also make sure you get a really good idea of how they use their voice on a daily or weekly basis. Are they a really heavy voice user? Because if so, you know, they're an athlete, they're a vocal athlete, and they've got to start thinking about their voice in those terms, okay? They've got to make sure that it's well-conditioned. They've got to they've got to do warm-ups. They've got to go do cool-downs. They've got to do all of the things that an athlete would do to keep their body in really good shape for their athletic endeavor. They've got to do the same thing for their voice. And then it can also help you sort of take a look at Okay, if you are, you're a lawyer and you do litigation, and then after you're you're done in court all day, then you're going to go home and you're going to hang out with your kids for a little while. And then you've got to teach a class at the local university and you're going to do that for three hours. Then you've got to figure out, okay, first of all, we, we need to get some breaks. We need to figure out ways that you can reduce your vocal mileage. You know, maybe you can't hold office hours before or after class or in between classes. You know, you can't go out for coffee after trial because you've got to you've got to rest your voice. So those things are super important to take a look at um, when you're looking at how they use your voice regularly. I think it's also important to make sure that you know if they've had previous voice treatment figure out what they did make sure you know what they did, what worked, what didn't work. Cause there may be a chance that what they were, they did previously may be really similar to what you're going to do. And you're going to have to be prepared to explain why, <laughs> why you're going to be doing it or why it may not have, have worked or maybe they laid the foundation for it, but we just got to continue on with it. Um, so really important to kind of know what sort of background they, they come from, uh, medical status, you know, if they've had surgeries or chronic disorders and medications, medications are important because medications can be really drying and they can increase thickness of the mucus on the vocal cords. And that's going to increase the effort required to get those vocal cords to vibrate. And then vocal hygiene practices, which We'll get into a little bit more later, but you got to know, you know, how much water do they drink? Are they drinking a lot of caffeine and those, and those sorts of things? Uh, next up is self-assessment from the patient. So, so what are their goals for their voice? What do they want to get out of therapy? I think this is essential because it really kind of helps you guide your therapeutic process. It can help improve motivation and adherence to the plan of care if they know what they're working for. Sometimes they're more motivated to, to, to adhere to the process. If they have specific goals or things that they're wanting to do with their voice, you can put that into their, into their exercises. So you can make it really functional. And then, you know, how does it affect, how does their voice problem affect them personally? You know, your voice is really intrinsically tied to who you are and 
how you feel about yourself. And, you know, if you're having issues with your voice, you know, it can affect how you feel about yourself. Does it affect their ability to communicate in everyday tasks at work and in social environments? And one way to kind of keep tabs on that is you can ask about it, but you can really get um, specific measurements with a voice handicap index, which looks kind of like this. This is um, two of the options we use. There's the regular VHI and then the VHI-10, which is just a modified version of the original, but it's been shown to be just as functional as the, the VHI, regular VHI. Um, but this is something that you can hand out to patients. You know, you could do it before every voice session if you wanted to, or you could do it after every so many sessions, but this is just kind of a way to really get a validation on how, how the patient's doing and are they making progress and are they starting to feel better about their voice. There's also a VHI for singers too, because, and I, I forgot to put this in here, but one, one thing to keep in mind is that like occasionally we'll have somebody come in for voice complaints and before they even see the physician, they fill out a VHI and their VHI is zero, which means no issues. Their, their voice is fine. And typically, you know, nine times out of 10, those patients are going to be a singer and when you have somebody who is a singer, they're always going to notice their voice problems in their singing voice before they will ever notice anything in their speaking voice, which is interesting because they use their voice more for speaking. So just one kind of thing to keep in mind that I didn't put in here, but I thought that it was really important to mention. Respiration. Respiration is probably like the number one most important thing when you're looking at voice and how the voice works. Respiration, if you're looking at your source field filter theory, it is your force. It is the driving force behind the voice. And so it's really, really important to take a look at how they're breathing. Okay. One, what does their breathing look like? Is it abdominal? Is it thoracic? Is it clavicular? So, like when they breathe in, do you see them tightening their neck? and their shoulders and their chest when they breathe in? Do they rise up or are they breathing from their diaphragm? Because if they're breathing from the, the neck and the shoulders, they're already putting tightness and tension into their neck and their shoulders before they've even tried to produce a sound. So you really need to make sure that this all stays nice and relaxed. And if it's not, you gotta figure out ways to help them breathe with a diaphragmatic breath. Um, making sure that they keep everything nice and relaxed. The coordination of respiration and phonation is also really important. You know, when they take a, when they breathe in, do they breathe in and then hold their breath and then talk and talk and talk. And when they're done, let all their air out. Seems counterintuitive, but I see it a lot with patients. Or, you know, do they take a deep breath in and then talk, 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 talk until they run out of air. And then they talk some more until they're out in their residual air, right? So also really something that's important to keep in mind. And then, you know, how often do they breathe? Do they take a breath periodically, you know, something that seems normal? Or will, do you hand them the rainbow passage and they take a breath in before they start? and then not take another breath in until they get to the end. So really make sure you're taking notes on, on how they breathe and how they coordinate that respiration with their voicing. You know, you can also take a look at their, their maximum phonation time and 
their ecstasy ratio to see kind of what they're capable of in terms of their breath support. I think I talk about aerodynamics here on this next slide. Not everyone has access to aerodynamic assessment. So go back to your ecstasy ratio and have them take a deep breath and have them hold out that long S sound and really kind of make that the oral cavity really nice and small and see how long they can hold that out for. And that'll give you an idea of what their airflow, their total airflow is. Acoustic assessment is awesome. If you've got the, if you've got the tools for it, they've shown that the, the noise to harmonic ratio is one of the, the aspects that comes out of the acoustic analysis. And that has been shown to be most closely correlated with roughness, breathiness, and hoarseness, which tie back to hyperfunctional dysphonia. So you've got the instrumental assessment. It's really cool. It's awesome stuff to have. And that's just how um, the aerodynamics and acoustics relate to that. And then just the, the oral mech examination, I think is really important. You know, are there structural or motor-based deficits that could affect the voice? Does everything look like it moves symmetrical? Also that can affect the voice. I think some of the big things here though, to take a look at are, you know, actually palpate the extrin extrinsic laryngeal musculature, okay? Feel their neck. When you feel it, does it feel tight? Or does it feel really soft and like easy to, to maneuver? Sometimes the patients will be so tight that it feels tender to the touch. You touch that area in between their, the, the thyrohyoid space. If you touch just on the top of the thyroid cartilage and you squeeze in, do you feel a space? Do they jump back a little bit? Um, because if they do, that's all really consistent with laryngeal hyperfunction. A lot of patients who are really hyperfunctional will have that anterior neck discomfort. And then ask, and I know this isn't necessarily oral exam that you can see, but, you know, ask them, you know, do they feel pain or soreness when you touch, but do they feel pain or soreness on the inside? You know, do they feel a dryness? Do they feel a tickling and itching or a burning sensation? Because a lot of times those are really often strongly correlated with with hyperfunction. And those are things that you'll, you'll want to help them address. So taking a look at the patient, you've got all of your information. Well, what do you, what do you do with it? Okay. Voice therapy, <laughs> voice therapy, according to Edie Hafner is a variety of tasks that will help eliminate harmful vocal behaviors, shape healthy vocal behaviors. And in the case of surgery or injury, help those vocal folds stay heal. You know, it's honestly, voice therapy works for just about everyone, children, adults, you know, different degrees of hoarseness, varying causes. I mean, it, it's pretty much good for anybody. It's usually the first line of treatment for hyperfunction, but also lesions of trauma, such as nodules, polyps. And I do have an asterisk next to this, because oftentimes this will need surgery to fully be removed. And in the case that surgery may be required, some ENTs, laryngologists will request one to two sessions of therapy prior to surgery so that the patient can start to learn the process of how the voice works, you know, what causes the lesions, and they can begin to eliminate harmful vocal behaviors and practice good vocal behaviors. Because the, the entire point of, of all of it is you know, you can go in and surgically remove any lesion that comes up, right? 
But if you don't take care of what caused the lesion in the first place, it's not going to come back. And so it's really important that you start that process before surgery so that they know they, what's going on. And then typically what will happen is after their period of waist rest, they'll re-engage immediately into waist therapy so that they can continue that process to make sure that they're not going to have that lesion come back. When you're looking at therapy, you've got two different approaches typically. You've got direct and indirect. Direct approaches are actually going to improve the way that the patient voices. It's going to improve the foundation. It's going to improve the respiration. It's going to improve that musculoskeletal function and make sure that it's all optimal for the most efficient voice use. They're your exercises. But indirect approaches are also important. And those are the cognitive, behavioral, psychological, and physical environments. So when you're looking at indirect approaches, you're looking at patient education, you know, teach them a little bit about the anatomy of the, of the larynx and, and how it works and what's normal physiology and what's abnormal physiology. And you don't have necessarily have to go into great detail, but I found that my patients really are more engaged if they know why they're here or what they're doing, you know, they can come in and say, well, I got these bumps on my vocal cords. Well, you don't know what the bumps are, or what caused the bumps, or how you can get rid of the bumps or prevent the bumps from coming back. You know, what, what's the point? Why am I going to do these crazy things that you're going to make me do? You know, how they use their voice, that can really impact the quality or the function on their voice. They need, they need voice rest. You know, you can't shout all the time, things like that, without having some sort of negative impact on the voice. But then also vocal hygiene comes into that too, is, you know, poor voice, how can poor vocal hygiene negatively impact the voice and how can they, you know, change what they're doing to bring in some good vocal hygiene habits? Stress management, stress really can kind of play a role in voice as well. You know, if someone's really stressed, that may manifest in their voice. It may make them feel more tightness or tension in the neck and shoulders, and that's also going to affect the vocal quality. And then also kind of take a look at social situations, work situations, relationships, and things of that nature that can really kind of affect the voice. Yeah. Marie commented that uh, they found that they get an aha moment when they explain how everything's working. It's like it clicks yeah. the patient understands how much control that they have. Yes. Yes. It is important to know that the patient does have some sort of control over that voice. And that's, you know, really the basis for a lot of the therapeutic techniques that we'll go over is that, you know, they can, when they get everything working correctly and they know how to make it work correctly, they can affect, affect the vocal quality. It's great. I love that comment. I really love that you pointed out like having an element of uh, discussing like stress management on there because I think we take for granted how stress can impact us physically and have like like concrete reactions or like consequences. I actually will give some people the perceived stress scale. I think it was made in like 1986 maybe. So yeah. 
it's just, it's like another kind of patient reported outcome measure, like sort of where you're just getting their perspective about what their stress level is like. And when you kind of add up the score and everything, it'll tell you like a perceived amount of stress in their life. I think based off of like the last month or so of like mild, moderate, or very like severe amounts of stress. And I love that right? It's really good to kind of just open that discussion about considering like, have you, like, has that person really kind of thought about all the different things going on? I know in my practice since the pandemic hit, you know, I had to keep reminding people, this is, this is not normal. Like you are living in the midst of a pandemic. This is an amazing amount of stress that you may not be fully comprehending how that's really impacting you. I mean, we think about small things. Oh, this is annoying X, Y, Z. But this has impacted all of us on a very large scale that, you know, sometimes people haven't really sat down to like unpack. And so that's kind of our moment to let them grasp that. And I love that. I love that. um, The idea of using the, the questionnaire, because that is just a really good way to open up a topic very gently. And, you know, it's really nice to kind of, you can pinpoint some things that way some specifics that way rather than just having to kind of straight out the gate discuss it that's great because that can be that can be kind of a sensitive subject it can be yeah and if you were to ask somebody like hey do you feel stressed like you know someone's gonna be like well who's not stressed right Right. it's just a factor of living in today's world but when you give them something that they can kind of rate and it makes them like look back and really consider the impact of different types of stressors then they start to recognize, oh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's a great way to kind of open that discussion. And then you can read them. If they don't want to talk about it, then you, you don't press. <laughs> you move on to your next thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, too, but in addition to that stress, you know, any sort of emotional issues that you're facing can also affect the voice, too. You know, my mom always used to tell me when she picked me up from school, she could tell how my day went based immediately based off of my voice and how my voice sounded. So, you know, emotions, you know, in adi- other emotions, in addition to stress can really kind of affect the voice as well. When my mother calls me now on the phone, she automatically knows like how I'm feeling. <laughs> how yeah. I'm feeling. She's like, oh, is now not a good time, Leanne? Yeah, like, I know. You sound good. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> but, yeah. And that's, I think that's too, because that counseling aspect is just one thing that in grad school, we just don't get, I, I didn't personally get a lot of, of education on how to be a good counselor. And it comes up so often in voice therapy. There's a lot of stuff that you're usually unpacking in a session that's not voice related. <laughs> so that's definitely it something to kind of think about as you're, as you're going in, but that's something I will add to my arsenal is that questionnaire on stress. I love that. So where to start? So I always love to start by setting the expectations for the therapeutic process, because if I just go in and say, okay, you've got a voice problem and this is what we're going to do for it be like what (laughs) um so I think it's really important that you set the expectations for the process 
they need to prioritize their voice to making it. They've got to commit to doing daily practice. You know, whatever that practice is that you've, you've set out, they've got to do it. Because if they're not going to do it, they're not going to make gains. If you're only practicing during your therapy sessions, you're not going to get the results that you're looking for. And, you know, one of the things that I often ask is um, when a patient comes in and they sit down in my chair and I'll ask them, okay, well, how's everything been going? How's your voice been since your last session? And if they say, well, it's been about the same or hasn't really changed, I'll often ask, okay, well, how are your exercises going? Tell me about that. You know, how often are you practicing? And if they're not making gains, usually because they're not doing it. So if they want to make improvements, they've got to do the work. And sometimes you just have to ask them, this is going back to that motivation, you know, why are you here? Ask them what their motivation for improvement is and remind them. It feels like that I feel like a, an, a workout instructor sometimes. I've done a lot of Peloton through the pandemic. And so I feel like a Peloton instructor. I'm like, okay, what are you here for? Like, why did you start this? And you got you to gotta keep that motivation up. I often have patients tell me like I'm the best personal cheerleader because sometimes during sessions, that's what they need. And I'm just, I'm cheering for them. If whatever they need, I'm going to do it. But also part of that expectation is that I expect that the patient is going to become their own clinician, okay? The work, the majority of the work for your voice is done independently outside of the therapy room. Think of me as your personal trainer. You know, you come in to see me. I teach you what to do and how to do it, but you got to do it on your own. Okay. So you've got to build awareness for normal voice versus abnormal voice. And in, in that normal voice and in that abnormal voice, I want you to feel the difference. You know, what does normal feel like? What does not normal feel like? You know, what does normal sound like? What does not normal sound like? Your old voice. You know, how does that sound different from this, this new voice that you like the sound of? So I think it's really important to kind of build that awareness because they, they've got to be their own clinician. You know, when they're outside doing the work, they've got to learn how to identify the problems and figure out how to solve them. And I'm not saying that you have to be able to do, to do that after your very first session, but I expect that after like two or three sessions, okay, like you got, you got to know what to do. But they've also got to know that progress is not always linear. They're not always going to make gains and it's not always going to be sunshine and roses. They may have, they may do really, really well. And then they may have a setback. Maybe they get a cold. Maybe they spend a night out and they had too many drinks and stayed up too late and they wake up the next day and their voice is pain. You know, so there are going to be gains. There are going to be setbacks, but you know, hopefully if, if your voice is doing well, maybe your setbacks you don't step back as far, you know, you don't, you're not starting from the very beginning. So that's really important to know is that it's just, it's not always going to be linear. You may have setbacks and that's part of life too, right? And this is like my, my favorite thing to think of um, and talk to patients about is that voice therapy is not physical therapy. I'm not trying to build strength. Okay. That's a different type of problem. That's a different type of exercise. We're trying to change a behavior. Okay. So, you know, think about it when you, when you get into your car every day, you don't even think about getting in your car. You just, you get in, you put the key in the ignition, you turn it on, you get your belt on, 
you move your engine and you're, you go, right? Well, now you get a brand new car that's, you know, not 20 years old. And all of a sudden, you no longer have an ignition. You have a push to start and the, the stick, the, the shift is completely different. And now you have no idea how to turn your windshield wipers on and you have no idea what's going to get the fluid going and, and all of those things. You don't even know how, where your gas tank is, okay? It's the same kind of thing with a voice, right? So now you're learning a new way to voice and it's tough and it's, it's going to take some time, but the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. And then you keep doing it. You keep doing it. You start to think about it less. And all of a sudden, you know, you get into your new car and it's just like, it was your old car. You've got it figured out. It's a breeze. But that's more of what we're looking for is not your, so you're changing a behavior. You're not just trying to build strength. Okay. So it's got to become part of your, your daily routine, you know? It's not enough to do the exercises and to use your voice well in your exercises. The ultimate goal is you've got to do that in your everyday voice, okay? So if you can do your exercises, just having a conversation with someone, perfect. You've reached your goal, right? Things to kind of think about. And that's sort of where I like to start. You know, I like to actually verbalize a lot of these things with my patients so that they're they're aware of what's going on and I don't want to waste their time and have them come into, you know, a session once every two weeks for three, four, maybe six sessions, depending upon how long it takes. But, you know, if they're, if they're not going to commit to the work, if they're not interested in the work, then, you know, it, it may not be therapy may not be right for them at that point in time. And that's okay too. But after kind of setting the, the framework, therapy, I take like to just kind of start with some of the indirect treatment. Okay. So teach them a little bit about how the larynx works. And I don't want to get super in depth, but I think it's really helpful for a patient to see what normal looks like so that they can compare it to theirs. And they say, oh yeah, okay, I get it. Like that makes sense. Like I see what's happening. Great. Okay. Now now what do we do about it is usually what they'll say. But I think this is a really great opportunity for you to educate the patient on what you're doing, why it's effective. And, you know, it's really, it's great for patient buy-in. And it helps you look knowledgeable. And they're like, okay, well, she knows what she's doing. All right, I'll give it a try. You know, educating patient on behaviors that could be contributing to the voice. I know I touched on this a little bit before, but, you know, are they shouting a lot? Do they talk over loud noises at work? Do they coach outside? You know, what are there things that we can do to kind of help minimize their burden a little bit? Okay. So, you know, if they're, if they shout from their first floor to their second floor to get their kids, is there something else we can do? Like, can we have them ring a bell? You know, some patients will use like those Amazon Echo Dots. Um, I had one patient that thought it was really fun. She bought a mic- megaphone and used that to call her kids. You know, do they coach outside? Can they get a personal amplification system to use? Same thing for, for a teacher. Um, if they're having a hard time projecting over their kids, you know, can they get a little speaker system or a personal ampl- amplification system to use in the class? Are they habitual cough or coughers or throat clearers? If they are, you got to try to change that, you know, try to give them something else to do. Maybe take a sip of water 
give a good hard swallow instead of the throat clear. You can do like the, that hard H sound, like a where you're still blowing a lot of air past the vocal cords, but you're not slamming them together for that traumatic effect. If they're a heavy voice user, make sure they're taking vocal naps, okay? You should get five to 10 minutes of rest for every hour or 50 minutes to 60 minutes that you're talking, okay? Because you need that rest. Again, like your, your voice box is just like any other muscle in the body and you should think of it as such. It's got to rest. It doesn't have an unlimited capacity. And then educate on vocal, healthy vocal hygiene practices. And they're, these are some of the ones that, you know, kind of everyone's used to, but it's really important, you know, make sure that you're staying really well hydrated. You're drinking lots of water, keeping those vocal cords hydrated, keeping that mucus that collects on the vocal cords really thin so that you don't have to increase the effort. To, to get those vocal cords to vibrate. They should glide off of each other nicely and they'll do it better when they're well hydrated and that mucus isn't really thick and sticky. Ambient humidification is great. You know, maybe if they have a really dry house, maybe they can put a little humidifier by their bed at night because they're not going to be drinking water throughout the night. So they're already going to be waking up in a dehydrated state. Maybe a little bit of ambient humidification can help. Um, and some patients are really into vocalness right now, like that personal humidification where you put over the mouth. So that's, that's a great way to keep well hydrated and keep that mucus really thin. Caffeine, alcohol, those are all going to be dehydrating. Citrus, acidic foods, spicy foods, those are all going to create really thick, thicky mucus. And so you're going to want to avoid those and make sure that you're drinking extra, extra water if it's causing you reflux that may have negative impact on your voice too. Habits to encourage, make sure they're getting adequate rest. And again, like I said, like any other muscle in the body, right? If like your body is tired, if you're exhausted, your voice is going to be tired too. It's not immune to, to that fatigue. Make sure that you're getting good general health, getting good exercise, avoid coughing and throat clearing, avoid secondhand smoke, avoid smoking. The voice, I have one laryngologist that I work with that really loves to describe the voice is being held up by two pillars and one is vocal hygiene and one is how you use the voice and you need both pillars there. You need both pillars present. They both need to be strong in order to keep that voice up. If you have to take away one or what you're not doing your part on one, the voice is going to fall. So I think vocal hygiene is really important in voice. It's probably not going to fix the voice but it's definitely going to help you optimize the health and the, and the way that the voice box runs. Other general things to think about, you know, avoid whispering, avoid shouting, while talking about environments, don't strain your voice during exercise. Uh, but I think the big one here is make sure you're doing your vocal warmups and vocal cool downs. If you're going to be doing a lot of talking, you've got to warm that voice up. Again, I know use a lot of, not, we use a lot of analogies in our clinic. But, you know, you would never go out and run a marathon and just start running and then finish and then stop. Before you start running, you're going to do some stretches. You're probably going to do a light jog. And then when you're done, you're probably going to take like a little cool down lap. And then you're definitely going to do some stretching, maybe some icing and foam rolling. You're going to do all of the things. And so it's important to think of the voice in that way as well.
So now we're getting into kind of the, the main idea about hyperfunction therapy and what we're, we're looking at. And so when I like to think of therapy for hyperfunction, I think one of the, the first things I think of is making sure that we have really good breath support and we're coordinating that respiration and that phonation, okay? We're building awareness for tension in the neck and the throat, and we'll work towards relaxing it. And we're proving overall voice technique. So bringing the voice forward and up and out rather than keeping it stuck in the throat. So those are my three main principles that I, I'm thinking of. And everything that we do in therapy should come back to those three main principles. Okay. And then again, we're not strength training here. We're, we're changing how you use your voice and how you're doing it consistently. So here is my little toolbox. Okay. So if I were thinking, okay, like, what am I going to do with a patient? These are the things that I'm going to think of first when I want to help a patient with laryngeal hyperfunction. Okay. First one up and probably the easiest, the easiest thing that you can do with a patient is talk about posture. Okay. Why, why is posture important? So poor posture can result in an unbalanced muscular tension. Okay. So if you think about it, like if you're sitting here, you've got more tension on one side of your neck than the other. Also, same thing with the palm. That's another thing I get a lot too, um, is patients will like, well, I can't like my, I always start to have problems when I'm on the phone. Okay. Well, how are you talking on the phone? Are you talking like this? Are you talking like this? So really making sure that you've got good posture. It facilitates, so good posture is going to facilitate good voice production with less effort, less effort. Start off by just upright posture, okay? Make sure you're sitting up nice and tall, okay? Nice and relaxed. Shoulders in a low back position, nice and relaxed. We don't want to scrunch up our forwards because that's just going to generate tension in the neck, okay? Head in a neutral position. Really make sure that they're taking note too when they're working at a desk and if they're talking from their desk, talking on the telephone, they're texting, okay? You know, in some cases, if it's really bad, um, they may need PT, OT, they may need some laryngeal massage and things of that nature. So that's something to, to kind of keep in mind. But posture is going to play a role. Um, and it's important too, during your exercises that when you're going through these exercises, make sure that the patient does have a nice posture and they're not kind of hunching forward or leaning back. I think of um, posture as being First thing, like when you have a technology problem, a problem, and you called IT, and they're like, "Well, did you turn it off and turn it on again?" It's like, yeah, start with the foundation. Exactly. And then moving to diaphragmatic breathing. Okay, diaphragmatic is really really important because it can help promote relaxation. Okay, there's just something really naturally and inherently relaxing about a deep breath. Okay but it also helps to make breathing easy, less effortful, make sure that you, this goes back to that clavicular or thoracic breathing. You don't want to see this when you ask them to take a deep breath, or you don't want to see this where you ask them to take a deep breath. Okay. When they have adequate breath support, that's not tight or tense. They're going to have plenty of breath or air for those phonatory tasks. So to practice that diaphragmatic breathing, have them sit in a comfortable, comfortable position. Some patients even like to lie flat on the floor of their bed or 
at home, I will never have them lie on the floor at the clinic. But when they're at home, sometimes it helps to lie down. And you can actually feel and see that diaphragm move up and down. Sometimes the visualization of a baby, you know, sleeping, baby sleeping, lying on its back in its crib. When they breathe in, you see that stomach rise. And when they exhale, you see that stomach fall. And that's sort of what we're trying to get back to. We started off that way somewhere along the lines, things kind of changed and we lost that. But we want to get back to that, you know, ask them to put one hand on their chest and one hand on their diaphragm and which one moves, you know, do they, do they feel their chest move more or do they feel their stomach move more? And if they don't feel that stomach, help them get to that place. Okay. Sometimes it helps them when they breathe in through the nose and then out through the mouth. Okay. Breathing in through that nose, just kind of helps slow and I don't want to say restrict, but slow and control their breathing in so they get more control over their breath. You know, it also filters and humidifies the air that you're breathing in a little bit more. So that's something to think about too when you're asking them to breathe in through their nose. And then so have them breathe in. Think about filling up the rib cage, expanding that abdomen outward. And then when you let that air out, first the lips and feel that air kind of move forward. Press that press on that abdomen a little bit and feel that kind of move back into, into the stomach. Okay. Repeat that several times. If I share a face with PT Morty, well, they call them mats, but they're like those big adjustable height padded flat beds, essentially. Uh-huh. So I'll take a patient out to one of those and have them lie down on that. And then put like one of my like big textbooks on their stomach with their permission. Oh yeah. And then they really, they get that amazing feedback because they can see that big book rise and fall with their belly. And that just yeah. really helps them with the that and they're struggling with the seated position kind of seeing how it's all supported. Yeah, I like that. Next, so just overall general relaxation. Okay. We want to reduce full body tension, we want to reduce laryngeal tension. Okay. You know, sometimes people just, do not have awareness for tension in the body. They don't even know it. They don't feel it. And one of the ways to help bring awareness for that is progressive relaxation. Okay. So slowly tensing and tightening muscles and then relaxing them. Okay. And you can do that, like starting from the feet up. If you're looking towards reducing full body tension, You can also do a modified version where you start with the hands and move up, Um, but you'll squeeze the hands, squeeze tight, hold it for five seconds and then release. And that helps them build awareness. And sometimes patients will go, oh yeah, like I actually feel that tightness when I'm breathing in. Or they'll say, oh yeah, you know what? Now I'm starting to feel that tightness when I'm talking. And so it kind of, they get that aha moment and it clicks. And so you know, progressive relaxation doesn't necessarily be needed to use for everyone, but that's a tool. If you have a patient that's really struggling to build that awareness, and if you're just wanting to help the patient relax in general, visualization is great for that. You know, having them close their eyes, imagine they're in a really peaceful, calming place, tie that in with some deep diaphragmatic breathing just to help get overall relaxation to kind of get you ready for relaxed voicing. If you have a patient that's really kind of complaining about neck tension, neck tightness, they've got a lot of that anterior neck discomfort, 
You can do some circumlaryngeal massage techniques, okay? The, the techniques themselves can help reduce tension, but you can also do it, these techniques during phonation, and it may help sort of reposture the larynx to a more natural or relaxed spot. And so what you'll do, the first one is a pushback maneuver where you will place the forefinger on the thyroid cartilage and push it back to change shape. I like to do it with my forefinger and my thumb. Find that thyroid cartilage and just push back. And it doesn't always feel great. If you have tightness or tension, it doesn't always feel great. But, you know, neither does a, you know, a deep tissue massage if you're really tight or tense, okay? So start light light pressure just a little bit and then start to add a little bit more if you think you can tolerate it okay pull down maneuver is probably my favorite because i do have a lot of anterior neck tension you'll place your thumb and your fourth finger in the thyrohyoid space so just above you find your thyroid cartilage and kind of move your fingers up to feel that thyrohyoid space and if a patient is really hyperfunctional, they may not have a thyrohyoid space or it might be really small and this may cause some discomfort. So again, start small, start light, but then you just kind of pull down on that thyroid, on the thyroid cartilage. And then I love this one too, the medial compression and downward traction with that thumb and that fourth finger in that thyrohyoid space and apply medial compression. And I sometimes even love to like dig into it a little bit and really try to feel that relaxation. And if you're new to it, it may not feel super relaxing, okay? But it's just working on starting light and moving up to apply more pressure. And some patients, again, who are super hyperfunctional may not even like a touch in their neck. So just be really mindful, be really careful. And if this is not gonna work for them, don't have to worry about it, but this is an option that you have. The last one that you can do is the lateral stretch of the thyroid cartilage. So you'll place your thumb and your forefinger on the thyroid cartilage, and then you're just going to gently pull over. If the patient's really tight, you might hear a little bit of clicking, a little crepitus is gonna come in, and that's, that's okay. Again, as long as you're doing it really gently and really soft to start. I do circumlaryngeal massage quite a bit. I do not often do it with phonation. Sometimes if I have a patient who has a lot of laryngeal pull up when they're phonating, I may actually hold their larynx down when they start to phonate, or I'll have them feel that rise of the larynx when they start to produce sound. But in terms of the other maneuvers, I don't typically do. But if, if a patient really gets a lot of laryngeal pull up anteriorly, superiorly and anteriorly, I will probably try to hold it down and see if they can produce better sound while I hold the larynx or but while I hold the thyroid cartilage. But then also have the patient feel too, because sometimes patients, patients' laryngeal hyperfunction manifests in a really tight, high pull and that palpation will help them realize what they're they're doing wrong. And you'll say, okay, now work on trying to, to produce a hum or an ooh or something like that while you don't get that rise in the larynx. Easy onset. The goal of an easy onset 
is to decrease laryngeal tension during the initiation of phonation. And so you want to reduce that collision of the vocal cords when the voice starts to turn on, okay? And one of the ways that you can do that is to just place like a gentle light H sound at the beginning of phonation because that H flows air past your vocal cords and it keeps them apart. It allows airflow to start before the vocal cords fully adapt to produce sound, okay? When the sunlight strikes raindrops, if I'm getting when the sunlight strikes raindrops, I can do when the sunlight strikes raindrops. So it's just that gentle H in the beginning to kind of stop those really hard, uh, hard attack, hard glottal. Um, Yonsai is a really great technique for reducing laryngeal tension and lowering the larynx. So kind of like what I was talking about before with those patients that really elevate the larynx during phonation. Yonsai is a really good way to kind of help lower that larynx as well. So it uses the natural functions of yawning and sighing to reduce that hyperfunction. Okay, so you can have the position, have the patient actually yawn and then have them sigh. Keep everything nice and open. Okay, really have them exaggerate that sigh. Let a lot of air move through. Okay. And then have them yawn and then have them sigh and then have them try to produce a, a vowel sound afterwards. <sighs> okay. Actually really get that sound going. <sighs> and then add a little bit more sound to it. Then can you turn that into a hum? <sighs> but still keeping that throat nice and open and relaxed and keeping that larynx lowered. And then can you try to turn that Yawn, sigh, vowel, hum into a word. Um, um, okay. So that is a way to just, it's one way to work on getting that larynx nice and relaxed, getting that airflow moving, keeping everything nice and open. Stretch and flow phonation. Okay. So this is really, really great for laryngeal airflow and control. It's great to help make phonation easier and work towards a more forward resonance, okay? Because from now on, everything that we're gonna be going over is gonna focus on airflow, easy phonation, and forward resonance, okay? So it's good for functional dysphonia, it's good for aphonia, it's great for patients that tend to hold their breath when they're talking, because it really helps them focus on a steady outflow of air. And so one of the ways to do that is with, is just by using a tissue, okay? For that good biofeedback, okay? So you can start by just blowing air out and observe the amount of movement of that tissue, okay? So when I blow air through my lips, really good rounded lips, try to get that air nice and moving, okay? Um, I wanna see that, that tissue float up, okay? So I'm gonna breathe in. I let my air out, and you can see that tissue rise, okay? So I wanna get used to, have the patient get used to that really good airflow. And then once they've got that airflow moving, then I'm gonna have them start to gently add voice. It's gonna be like an ooh, and it's gonna sound really breathy at first. There's probably not gonna be a whole lot of voice to it, okay? It's gonna be a gentle start to, to adding the voice. So it'll, it might sound kind of like this. 
Okay. It might be really, I have patients that describe it as a really buzzy sound. Okay. It does kind of have that a little bit of a buzzy quality to it. Once they get that buzzy quality of sound, they get that phonation going with the flow of the tissue. If they can keep that flow of the tissue moving the same way without voice and with voice, it's starting to feel good. They're feeling relaxed. Then you start to take that ooh and try to move it into words and phrases. Ooh, one, ooh, two, ooh, one, two. Ooh, how are you? Ooh, what's your name? Ooh, one, two, one, two, one, two. Ooh, how are you? Ooh, how are you? How are you? So there's like the progression for that. Um, but use that as a tool. It's kind of like a thread. You're pulling the voice out. You're pulling out good technique. Okay. Next, inhalation phonation. Inhalation phonation is interesting. And I don't use it a lot. It's something that I really only try with my aphonic patients. And this is to, and it may, I wonder if it may work um, with, could say like the, the MTD type one patients, but this is to encourage true vocal fold vibration. And so this might be good for patients that use ventricular fold phonation, have functional aphonia or marked muscle tension dysphonia. And what you'll do here. As the patients are going to produce a really a high-pitched voice on inhalation, okay? When you do that inhalation voicing, the true vocal folds are stretched and they're adducted and they're in vibration. So you're kind of forcing the, the, the situation so that the patient can try to get voicing. And then you use that same type of voicing to try and produce phonation, try to produce sound on the exhalation, okay? So when you produce voice on an inhalation, you use the hands and you kind of do an e. Okay, so you inhale, you do, you use your voice e, e, and then you come back down on that exhalation. You say that same vowel, you say that e, and you bring your hands down with it. Okay, e, 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 e. And then if you want to move up through the hierarchy, you do it without the hands. And even I kind of struggle without the hands a little bit, okay? Well, I'll try it. E, 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 e. And then you move to single syllable words like cat, 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 okay? It's tough to do. It works for patients that do have issues, but they just can't get any sort of voicing out because you're trying you know, in that sort of a situation, kind of working the environment to where they get some type of, of vocal fold vibration. So then you move to single syllable words, and then you try to get them once they can do the single syllable, single syllable words, then see if they can do that. They can pronounce that single syllable word without the inhalation. And they do that same sort of thing. And then really use that to kind of guide you into true vocal fold vibration for voicing. Okay. It's tough. And honestly, I struggle to do it without the hands. I've got to do the hands, the hands help, but that's just, you know, another tool in your toolbox. It's one of those that I kind of keep 
stored away for my really, really challenging patients, but it's something. And sometimes all a patient needs is a couple instances of getting phonation, of getting some vocal cold vibration to get it to click. So one tool for your toolbox, confidential voice. So again, you know, you're just reducing laryngeal tension, you're reducing hyperfunction and really focusing on airflow. And you start with an easy, breathy vocal quality, not a whisper, not a whisper. Okay. Whispering is just strain, but you're talking to somebody kind of like, you know, you're, you're talking in a really quiet and quiet environment, kind of like this. So you still have voicing, but it's still not quite like full voicing like I am right now. And it's definitely not a whisper. Okay. It's not, it's, it doesn't work for everyone. But again, for some folks, it's a really good way to get them. It's a tangible way to get into voicing with good airflow. It's something that maybe you can start. Maybe you don't necessarily need a hierarchy to do. Maybe you can start just regular conversation with that, that confidential voice and get into it like that. Like I said, it's different. It's not great for everybody, but for some folks, it really works really well. And that's why, you know, there are so many different kinds of voicing techniques because it's going to be different for everyone. Like what works for one person isn't going to work for another. Chant speech. Chant speech is awesome. Chant speech, it reduces phonatory effort. It really decreases vocal fatigue, improves airflow during speech. And you really just chant what you're saying. You use a rhythmic prostate pattern. That serves as your template for your spoken utterances, okay? So why does hand speech work? Well, it requires you to have good coordination of your respiration and phonation, and it kind of forces your good forward resonance, okay? After you start chant speech, then speakers start to habituate to these more efficient vocal patterns, okay? So let's say if I'm running through just a, a rote passage, if I'm starting with really easy words, Okay, man, may, meal, meet my mom, mixed more milk, march for a mile. I can't do those really good chants if I don't have that good forward sound and I don't have that good resonance. And so you can kind of start to move it down from there into more normal patterns. Okay, meet my mom. Meet my mom, meet my mom. Okay. And that's just another way to, to try to get that good forward focus and that good and that good breath support. Okay. I love chant speech. Patients always have interesting commentary on their on their chant speech when they do it. They love it. They feel like they're singing. And it's really great for, for patients that do have some sort of a singing background or like to sing because it feels like it's more on par with their interests. And so I'll keep chant speech in the back of my mind if I know a patient has that sort of interest. Semi-occluded vocal tract. Okay. Big ideas here are improving airflow, improving that coordination of respiration and breath support, and really focusing on placing the voice forward and front. Okay. I love this one. This is probably my number one go-to to start with because it's just, it's tangible. You can feel it. It seems to have really good success 
with a lot of patients. You want the, the physics behind it. I've got the details there. I think the big deal is that it helps you, it helps the patient really focus on making sure that the air pressure below the vocal folds is the same as above the vocal cords. And when those two air pressures are similar, the vocal cords really, uh, they come together, the collision forces are really low and they really oscillate nicely, okay? You've got that good balance of air pressure and this, it helps a ton. It's also a great warm up prior to voice work. It's a great cool down after voice work. I mean, it just, it really does all the things. Some versions that you might hear of semi-occluded vocal tract, you've got straw phonation, you've got cup bubbling, you've got lip trills and tongue trills, okay? Lip trills are great, but they're not always easy for all patients to complete, okay? It takes a lot of breath support to be able to do it. And sometimes starting straight out the gate, it's going to be a struggle. And if they're struggling straight out the gate, you're going to lose them. They want something, you know, that they can, they can do that's easy to start. Tongue trills, same sort of thing. They're, they're a little bit more challenging, but straw phonation is great. Cup bubbling, for whatever reason, seems to be most successful. And the one my, ones my patients like the most, even though it seems ridiculous. And I will tell them that, you know, if we go this route, it probably is going to sound a little bit ridiculous. They're probably going to think I'm crazy, but it really does help improve not only their technique, but then also their awareness too. So you'll start with a cup with a little bit of water and a straw. Okay. And you're going to work that diaphragmatic breath and going to have them blow that air through the straw to create bubbles in the water. And then, you know, Kila, make sure you say, okay, you know, as you do this, your throat should feel open and, and relaxed because all you're doing is blowing air through it. You know, you shouldn't have that tightness or tension as you're just blowing that air through. But then, you know, once, if they've done it a few times and it's feeling good, it's sounding good, then have them go ahead and start to add voice to it. And once they once they start to add voice, you know, from your perspective as a clinician, the bubbles shouldn't change much. You know, bubbles should stay consistent. They should stay steady, and there there should be no stoppage as they move from no voice to voice. If there's any change, you know that there's something happening here in the at the level of the throat. Okay, and so you help them work through it. Okay ask them, you know, what, did you feel any difference? Did you hear any difference? Have them go back to just doing regular bubbles. Have them feel that nice open throat. Then add the, the voice back in. No voice, voice, no voice, voice. And see what they can do to, to get that voiced cup bubble to feel more like their non-voiced cup bubble. But for whatever reason, I don't know if they just think it's fun and it, harkens back to, you know, their, their days in the lunchroom. Um, I don't know, but for whatever reason, bubbles seem to be the, the favorite, at least in my clinic. But you can also do the same sort of thing with a straw. Blow air through the straw, 
and then start to add voice to it. Mm, kind of fun because it sounds like a kazoo. Mm, you can add pitch glides to that too to help with vocal flexibility. But it's not going to work if you're not keeping your voice nice and forward. Okay, you still have to think about that. Placing the voice in the front of the face and then moving it constantly forward. Got ahead of myself a little bit. Resonant voice therapy is probably by far my number one go-to when starting a patient on therapy for for hyperfunctional voice. And there are several, there are a lot of reasons why. The main idea here is you really balance your oral and nasal resonance when producing voice. Okay. And you focus on really improving your coordination and breath support with that voice, but always keeping it forward because when you place your voice forward, you focus that voice forward, you get it up and out of your throat and into the mouth. Okay. Resonant voice really focuses on those oral sensations, feeling those things. Okay. So when you, um, the, the, and the oral vibrations are typically, you feel them on the lips. Sometimes you'll feel it on the teeth, the anterior hard palate. Some people will feel it in through their sinuses. But when you do a hum, for instance, and you really get it nice and far forward, you feel that vibration on your lip. And you want to bring the patient's attention to that vibration. They want to feel it up here. You can do a hum, but you can do a really throat-focused hum. And you're not going to feel it on your lips. You're going to feel it in the back of the throat. And so really focus them in on those vibratory sensations. Make sure that they're feeling it in the front of the lip. You just want to look for the strongest, cleanest voice possible. Okay. Really bringing it forward. And sometimes they're not always going to feel it on the lips. Maybe they'll say, oh, you know, the first time I did it, I felt it in my throat. And the second time I did it, I kind of felt it like in the, the middle of my hard palate. And that's okay. You know, I like to think of resonant voice as a spectrum rather than right or wrong. I don't ever want to tell them that it's right or wrong. Like if you're not feeling it in your throat, if you're feeling it up and more forward, you're headed in the right direction. And like you're doing exactly what I need you to be doing. Okay. And then just keep encouraging that, that more forward focus. You know, some people like, like, like I said, they like to feel it. I, I, I feel it coming through my eyeballs, you know, whatever works for them, whatever imagery is best for them. doesn't matter to me, as long as it results in a really good, clean vocal quality from my perspective, but more importantly, from their perspective. And then it feels good. It doesn't feel tight. They don't feel like getting stuck in their throats coming out and moving forward. And one of the easiest way to do that is to mm, start with the M. Going back to like that chant speech, I can use those same same stimuli. Man, make, meal, mom, mix, meet my mom, make more movies, march for a mile. Every time I do that, I feel those vibrations in my lips. Some, some of the sounds, I feel them in my teeth. I feel the same thing too with an N, you know, V sounds, sounds, any of those sounds, you feel those in the mouth and you just want to really focus on that 
that oral sensation, those vibrations and keep moving that. You typically start with something really basic and isolated like that hum and then you move into to single words so single syllable words multisyllabic words phrases reading conversation you know follow the patient with what they need sometimes it's enough for them to do just words and then they've got it in in conversation and so if they can do that that's amazing like to throw in like automatic speech tasks as they practice that like working up the hierarchy so that they they're that's at that level where they're still kind of focusing more on the production and achieving the resonant voice but they need more speech practice but they don't have to like have the cognitive focus on what they want to say or responding to a question so they right. can count to 100 or count to 50 and like they don't have to think about counting that's like automatic exercises are, I won't spend a lot of time on vocal function exercises, but I wanted to include them because I think they're important and I don't feel like they get enough, um, enough limelight. Um, their exercises, vocal function exercises are great for hyperfunction and hypofunction. They're just, they're kind of great for all the things. Joe Stemple is kind of known for them. Um, and so I would encourage you to kind of look more into his work and having him go through the, the exercises because I certainly don't do them justice, but they're they're really great. They are good for hyperfunction. I love to use them with singers because again, it's kind of along the lines of chant like speech, but it just feels kind of like singing. And so they really tend to enjoy it. But it, you know, the basic principles are the exact same as everything else. Good breath support, forward focus, relaxed throat. But it's in a really nice task that is really great for a patient, particularly one with a singing background, to, to look into. And so you'll start with a rope with a task of just a really nasal E. And you really want to make it really tinny. You really want to close the, the oral tract so that you really feel that production of that nasally. Okay, hold it as long as you can. This is your good warm up. Okay. This is producing voice on a really, really relaxed, open throat. You're focusing everything up towards the hard palate. So you shouldn't feel anything in the throat. Okay. And you're going to hold it as long as possible. The next task is a little bit more challenging. And you're going to do a buzzy O. It's almost like an old, really rich, full. And you're going to move from a low note to a high note. Okay. Then you'll do the opposite. You'll move from high to low. And then you're going to do two of each. Two of each until you get to the fourth exercise. And you're going to hold a buzzy O on the musical notes, D, D, E, F, and G for as long as possible. And I usually have, um, I'll pull up a, a keyboard on the internet, on a website, or I have a keyboard app on my phone just to hit those hit those notes and then they're going to hold that note on hold that o on that note for as long as i can and that just helps with overall easy efficient voicing but then it also helps strengthen up the laryngeal musculature too 
So really great exercise for, for hypo function, but it's great for hyper function as well, especially um, for singers. They, they tend to really enjoy this particular exercise. So another, another type of exercise is to kind of hold in your back pocket. But again, Joe Stemple is a really great resource for all things vocal function. And last but not least is conversation training therapy. And this is one that yeah, I contemplated whether or not I wanted to put up on here because I didn't know if I, I felt like I was experienced enough to speak to it. But I'm going to give it a try. I'll just at least chat about it a little bit. This is a type of therapy that does not use any sort of hierarchy. So it's different than all of the other exercises that I've discussed today. And this type of therapy is conducted in patient-driven conversations, which is really interesting. So you start the, the therapy session by having a conversation with your patient, okay? So it can be about whatever they want it to be about. And the only cue that you're going to start off by giving them is that you want them to focus on clear speech, okay? Making sure that their, their voice is really clear, maybe like they're talking to someone that might be hard of hearing. You know, you're not going to focus on that loudness piece because I know that people tend to focus on increased loudness on hard of hearing. But what you can really do if you're wanting to help somebody understand that, that maybe um, a little bit hard of hearing is to really make your speech really clear and really articulate, okay? And the great thing about focusing on clear speech is that you have the ability to focus on the mouth sensations for all sounds, right? Sounds very very similar to all of the other types of, of voice exercises that we've gone over today, particularly resonant voice, right? So you really think of the, the clear speech you put everything, all of the focus on the mouth, and then you start to take the focus off of the throat. And then as you do that, then you start to build in some of the other pieces of traditional voice therapy, okay? When they do that clear speech, do they hear a difference? Do they feel a difference? Maybe they don't know. They just know something's different and that's fine, okay? But then you may, maybe you transition into some negative practice, okay? so. You were using this clear speech and that started to change your voice a little bit. Okay, cool. Now, can you go back and do, you know, continue your story, but can you go back into that old voice? All right, now go back into your new voice. Can they do that? Can they start to differentiate between those two voices? Then again, focus on that clear speech. What's awesome about this too is that you can start to add in some of those other aspects too. Like if I'm talking to you, about my day, you know, you can elongate some of those consonant sounds and really focus on the mouth sensation. Like mm, today, I went to the grocery store and I bought meat and vegetables. Okay. So, you know, that's a way to start working on, okay, let's do a few sentences where you're holding out those consonant sounds. Can you feel, do you feel those vibrations? Okay. Awesome. 
okay, well, now let's go back to that clear speech. Or is your voice sounding the same? Does it still sound good to you? Does it still feel good to you? Okay, great. And then you can start to try varying positive patterns and instead of, okay, think about, tell them to think about when you start a different part of, of a phrase, okay? Try to pitch up a little bit, okay? Move your pitch up a little bit. Try to focus on that, kind of like I'm doing now here, instead of starting up high and then moving low and then falling down in the gutter down here to finish, okay? So you can embed all of those different pieces just into a conversation. And so a lot of it is through clinician reinforcement. So the patient is talking and you're reinforcing these different things, but you're not necessarily saying, specifically saying what you're doing, but you're just asking them to try these different things with their voice. And then you're imitating, you're imitating maybe some of the good things and you're imitating maybe some of the bad things and then definitely modeling all of the good vocal behaviors. And so I love this. I don't necessarily think, I, I mean, I, I personally always feel like I'm constantly learning, but this one was definitely, is it feels like one where I'm not necessarily an expert in it, but I'm working on it. I love doing it. It makes a lot of sense. And for the right patient, you can get them into really good voicing in one session. Like they can leave out, out the door feeling, like, oh, I got that. Like I can do this. Maybe I can't do it all the time, but I can do it. And I know I can do it. So I got to work on it, but it's functional. It's, it's there and it's, you're hitting their goal right out the gate. And I've also, you know, when I first started getting into this type of therapy, I would start with, you know, some of my um, more comfortable tasks, you know, maybe I would try some straw phonation or tissue blowing just to work on building that awareness and then, you know, move into this more quickly, you know, maybe instead of resonant voice, maybe I do just a couple words, maybe a couple phrases. And then I'm like, okay, let's get into this right away. And so it's not great. It doesn't work for every patient. But it's when it works, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. So just another thing to kind of try in, in, you know, keeping your arsenal and, you know, maybe you do the other things first and that's great. And then you jump into this. Just another really cool, really cool technique. Some things to keep in mind, you know, you always want to build awareness for what the patient is doing. And, and two of the things to really kind of hone in are, you know, what feels good, what sounds good, what doesn't feel good, what doesn't sound good. Um, help them explain why, help help them make connections, keep it simple, keep it brief. But, you know, you want to help them identify what feels good and so that they continue to do that. Always bring tasks back to the patient, ask them to identify how it feels, how it sounds. You know, if it doesn't feel or sound right, can they make it better? If it does feel right, if it does sound right, how do they make it stay that? How do they make it that way? And can they continue to do that? You know, if they can't describe it, that's okay. They may not. It might take a few sessions, but ask them to think about it and be mindful of it. And you're always wanting to turn the patient into their own clinician. Okay? They're the ones that are going to have to do their voice, um, their voice work at home on their own. And so they've got to be able to do that. They got to figure out what's right, what's wrong, and, and to move from there 
imagery and action sometimes are, are really great tools. So think of their voice, how it looks and how it sounds to them and have them put a little pet, a little bow around it and have them use that. So I had one patient, um, really neat lady. She was actually an attorney that I had alluded to before. And she said that she would think of her voice as like a surfboard. So when her voice was doing really well and she was really using good technique, she was riding the wave. And then when her voice started to tank, it started to fall below and she was starting to go below the wave. And so her idea behind her voice, instead of thinking of all of the different things, like, is my breath support good? Is my placement good? Is my pitch good? She would think, oh, I got to get back up on top of the wave. And that was it. And that was enough for her to think about that. You know, I've had patients say stuff like they would talk through their eyes. I've had patients make rainbow motions coming from their mouth and out. Me, my mom, whatever works for them to help help them think about it and take some of that cognitive load off, I think is great. Different things will work for different people. And you may need to try a variety of things before one works. And that's why there's a whole plethora of different things. They're all basically the same idea. They, t- they incorporate the same principles, but it's a different way to go about it. And they exist because they're needed. You know, not everything is going to work for every one person. Sometimes I think recording the voice and playing it back is a really good tool, especially in the case of like, I'm thinking of one patient recently who had bilateral vocal cord polyps and serious hyperfunction. And so, you know, we recorded her voice on her first day and then, you know, she, she was doing really well. I'm like, wow, you know, your voice is sounding awesome. It's not normal by any means, but she, she was less strained. She was starting to become a little bit more breathy, but she actually had some pitch and tonality to her voice and some clarity, even though there was still breathiness. And she's like, you know what? I just don't hear it. Like my voice just doesn't sound normal. Okay, you know what? Let's record it. We're going to record it today. We're going to play your old recording and then we're going to play your new recording. And then I'm going to see what you think. I'm going to have you analyze it. And then you tell me what your thoughts are. And, you know, she didn't even have to listen to her new recording. She heard the first five seconds of her old recording and she's like, wow, that was me. So I think there's a lot of value to, to recording the voice um, at different, at different places of the, in the therapeutic process. Voice therapy is kind of like peeling back layers of an onion. You know, you may peel back one layer only to find another problem. Fixing one aspect of the dysphonia may reveal a new one. And that's another really important one to keep in mind doesn't mean that you failed. It just means that you uncovered something else that's going wrong. And one thing that comes to mind with me in this case is like uncovering someone's spasmodic dysphonia, right? So they come in super hyperfunctional. There's not a real, a lot that tells us or indicates to us that the patient has spasmodic dysphonia at this time. But then we start to take away some of that hyperfunction and we're like, Oh, this is why you're so hyperfunctional. This is, there's something else going on. And so keep in mind that it may reveal something that's going wrong or something else that's going on. So if it's not getting better, if a new problem presents itself, it's nothing, it's not a failure. You just figured out, you know, what really is going on. Analogies are awesome. If you can't tell, I've, I love analogies. I think it's a great way to kind of explain to a patient what's going on. They can understand um, a little bit better kind of 
this weird voice topic that we're talking about, which seems really foreign and really subjective and doesn't really, you know, you don't really understand it a whole lot because you never really thought about your voice until you had a problem with it. And so I think analogies are just really are fun ways to really kind of factor the patient and help them explain a little bit more about what's going on with their voice. Other final thoughts. Many of these techniques are designed to initiate good voicing. The tasks are specific and they're limited. Okay. We need to make sure that we help the patient establish carryover because if they get great voice in their exercises, but they can't get it into their conversation on the phone with their mom, it doesn't really do that much good. So we need to make sure that that's part of our job is to help them care, establish that carryover. They've got to do the work, but we have to help them figure that piece out. Make sure your exercises are specific, you know, practicing humming before an M word isn't going to create a resonant voice when you give a presentation. So help them bridge that gap. You know, you can say a word by adding a hum mm, computer, you know, now you're working on a little bit more generalization and then you take that hum away mm, computer, computer, and you want to try to keep that voice the same with the hum and without the hum. Okay. If you can do that, then move into small, easy to read paragraphs. Maybe now you're just humming at the beginning of a sentence and then you start to take that away. Maybe you're only doing one or two hums throughout the whole thing. And then maybe you don't have to hum at all. So those are just kind of ways to kind of modify what you're doing. And then just make sure it's really functional. Make sure it's applicable to the patient. You know, help them develop functional phrases. Help them help them develop their good voice and things that they say every day. Because maybe they can't use their good voice in a conversation every day. But maybe you can start off with their functional phrases. Maybe you help them read a book that they enjoy sharing with their grandchildren. Maybe it's part of like their opening statement for their, their classroom. Make it challenging, you know. Make sure you, you have them practice in noise. Make sure they practice while they're engaging in other tasks. Because it's not, you know, conversation does not always happen in a closed small room with two people face to face. Meet the patient where their needs are. Every patient goes at their own pace. They require different levels of assistance. So really kind of keep in mind, your patients are going to be totally different. And one patient may blow through conversation training therapy in one day. And, you know, you may be working on cup bubbling with another patient for two or three sessions. The work is not over when they finish therapy. The work is just getting started. Okay. So it's like a personal trainer. I teach you what to do and how to do it. I make sure that you can do it. But you got to do it on your own now. Now that you know how to do it, the work continues. Okay. And then, you know, help them with their motivation. If they're struggling to get started, remind them why they came to therapy in the first place. You know, you can help them develop or realize their motivation, but you can't give it to them. And then, you know, their goals may change and that's okay too. So just something to keep in mind as you're going through that process. Thank you, Lynn. That was wonderful. Earlier, I was just going to ask about like we were talking about conversation therapy and building that awareness and that insight. I was like, oh, yeah. do you ever record them? And then in the next slide, like you mentioned recording them and having them listen oh. to the voice. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Good. you got it all taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that was phenomenal, Lynn. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed Thank that. You. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed yeah. talking about it. I could talk about it all night. <laughs> 
ready for hour three. Raise your hand. I know. Let's go. <laughs> are there any questions from our audience for us tonight? So far, people are just chiming in to say um, how much they enjoyed it and how great it was. So good job. Good. Thank you. I know. I I know how it goes. Sometimes you know you you finish the session and you're like, oh yeah, that was good. I get that. And then, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, you're like, I should have asked this. I don't remember that. I've included my email address on the front slide for slides. So if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out, use me as a resource. I'm happy to help answer any questions or point you in the direction of anything you might need. So just let me know. I'm here. Okay, well, I don't see any questions, so I think we'll just wrap up. Have a lovely night, everyone. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Leanne. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 